0: Welcome to Reconsider. I'm Bill Hartman. This is the podcast to challenge you to ask better questions, to look beyond traditional models of thinking, and arrive at better health and fitness solutions. Well, but we go off on tangents too, right?
1: That's true. So
0: we'll we're pretty we're pretty
1: we'll good at that. We're gonna talk about external rotation and internal rotation and reconsidering what's actually happening with those Mm -hmm. and how they're both, they're both actually happening at the same time. And, uh, we can, we can kind of touch a little bit on, you know, relative motion and how that relates to that. But I guess let's, you know, let's talk first about like traditional representation of external and internal rotation in like physical Mm -hmm. therapy, for instance.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, so this is, this is where you have to break out the dead guy anatomy concept because that's what it's based on. So they say, well, we have this dead guy land on a slab. We're going to call that anatomical position. And then they just, they, they decide that, okay, we have to have these zero points. And so dead guys have straight planes. If they land on a table, they have straight planes. And so then we can, we can sort of use those as, as a frame of reference uh, against which to measure, and then they decided that okay, so uh, we're going to have these places where we're going to say that this is a zero point, and so if you were looking at, let's just use the hip as an example, and so the way that we the way that we would measure like a supine hip internal and external rotation measure, the the zero point is somewhat in on the vertical, if you will, and they'll say anything on this side. By definition, because of the straight plane representations, anything on this side would be considered internal rotation. Anything on that side would be considered external rotation. And, and that's all well and good from a, a comparator, I suppose. But that's just not that's not a reality because um, it creates a lot of – it ultimately creates a lot of confusion because, number one, we're not measuring a hip. We're, we're taking – we're taking systemic measures. And number two, that ain't where the zeros are. The Zeros are at the ends of the motion. And we have both an, an ER and an IR present at the same time. So there is like a certain measure of ER, a certain measure of IR. So the way I would represent this, if you were to take a hip to the very end range of the measurable external rotation and then call that zero Anything away from that would be a reduction of external rotation and an increase in the amount of internal rotation relative to the starting position. And then you start to see how ERs and IRs are actually superimposed. So they're both there at the same time. Um, a, A nice comparison is the glass half full, glass half empty kind of a concept. It's like, well, which one is it? Well, it's both. Right. If I fill the full, the glass full, then there is no empty. If I empty the glass, there is no full, but anything in between has measures of both. And so this is, this is a super imposition of, of those two qualities of internal and external rotation. Because they don't, they, they are not measures of the same thing. Um, if we looked at it from a gravitational perspective, internal rotation would be going downward and external rotation would be going upward because that's basically what happens when we actually move in those directions, right? So we, again, it's just the way that things have been defined in the past is, is based on a, a limited model and we have to understand a little bit more about how the structure actually works. And if we can understand that, and we start to see that, okay, we have to take these two things into consideration at all times. There is going to be a measure of ER. There's going to be a measure of IR um, that are occurring simultaneously. There will also be positions where one of them is going to disappear. And if we're talking about like high force conditions, we're going to see a reduction of the external rotation because we can't produce force quite well in external rotation. We have to have a bias towards Internal rotation to do so, and if we talk about space to move into or high velocity activities, then we start to see a whole lot more external rotation and a whole lot less internal rotation under those circumstances.
1: Right. So any any position that you're measuring, you're so if you're getting into a position of maximal external rotation, you're just ha- also in a position of minimal um, internal rotation. And vice versa. So if you're taking yes. someone's hip to like a like a fully ER position to measure at mm-hmm. the end range of full ER, that is the yeah. least amount of IR available. Yes. Yes. And then, at, but there's still a little. There is still some IR there, right? Because it, it's never like zero.
0: Um. So it, it, this is this is going to be tent be dependent on whether like any any measure of force is being applied in a direction. Okay. Okay. Um, so, generally speaking, for for most of our activities, we would have we would have some some measure of of internal rotation. Um, here's one for the uh, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guys. You're rolling with somebody, and you're trying to isolate a limb. What you're actually trying to do is you're trying to move the limb away from midline which is where most people can produce force. So when you isolate a limb, you move it away from midline, you move it into the externally rotated position because that is the most vulnerable position to be in for a number of reasons, but it's also the position of the extremity where the least amount of force can be applied. And so if I'm the weak guy fighting the big guy, if I can isolate a limb, my whole body against a limb that's in a position where it can't produce force. So it's externally rotated. It's it's biased towards external rotation. Um, I can, I can Mm. um, apply a great deal of force against a limb that is actually rotated. And so if you think about things like that, then you, well, but see, this is, this is the, like from a tactical, and, and, and I know, I know this much about BJJ having worked with a few people. Right. But it's like, you know, when, when you're, when you're working on, some sort of technique it's like the idea is if I if I can get them to move away from midline that's where I can be most successful regardless of, of my size differential the place I don't want to be is in close because then they have high degrees of force um, but that's also you know one of those things that that people will do to de- defend themselves right everybody pulls in everybody squeezes inward right because right, that is the one place where you can defend yourself hmm?
1: Yeah, because that's square. just one
0: representation. Yeah, you know, it's just one representation. You look at, you know, throwing an implement of some kind, right? The release is always going to be in this very externally rotated position because that's where the velocity the the the, the maximum velocity is going to be demonstrated.
1: Yeah, if you want to try to get the object as close to it, its like, you know, terminal velocity, I guess. You have to yeah. you have to be in you have to be, you have to move through the ER space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you yeah if you were to you couldn't if you tried to throw a, a discus like really close to your body it would not go nearly as far. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, you know, and we've we've kind of known this for for a while. When you look at strength curves and such, and you see that the well force and velocity really not related, right? Um, and the reason being is because they require a differential in bias. It's like for high forces, I need to be able to produce the internal rotation for high velocity. I need to produce more external rotation. And so I'm giving up one to get the other under most circumstances.
1: Yeah. So maybe, maybe we just to, to try to capture people's attention. We, we could throw up a little chart of like the continuum of ER to IR, kind of what we were talking about, like the terminology that fall within the categories so if we'll, we can just read, we read off of this list that we have here. So we're talking about external rotation versus internal mm-hmm. rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about inhalation versus exhalation. Right. We're talking about expansion. So,
0: yeah, okay, so, so if, I, if I take a breath in, um, I am I'm expanding the thorax that would be movement away from midline, right? Right. It would be a reduction of densities on that list, right? You know, it would be a reduction in density. Right? Low density. So that would be that would be up. So we think about up and away from midline being external rotation under more circumstances.
1: Yeah, that sort of expansion, creating space, um, mm-hmm. low density, higher center of gravity away yep. from the midline, like you said, yep. velocity, yep. expansive, yeah. the display, you need space to display velocity. So you have the force production and then the subsequent display of the force production can't happen in that compressed state it has to release. Right. It's like when a ball bounces, when a, when a, mm-hmm. uh, when a rubber band ex- like explodes, there's a loosening of everything to expand through. through.
0: Can I, can I, can I do the, my favorite density example? Sure. Okay. This is for scuba divers out there. Okay. So all scuba divers with any level of experience understand the concept of getting what's called neutrally buoyant. So when you scuba dive, you go under the water, the water starts to shove you down. So there's, there's a, there's the, the downward pressure, that will actually push you into the ocean floor. So you wear a buoyancy compensator, which is like for, for those people that don't understand what a buoyancy compensator is, it's kind of like a life vest that you fill with air. So you put a little bit of air in it and it prevents you from getting shoved all the way down to the, to the bottom of the ocean. And then you, you, you put enough air into it so that you literally don't move relative to a, a a point in space in the water. However, if, if you get neutrally buoyant and you take a breath in, you actually reduce your density. And so then you feel yourself rise upward a few feet. And then as you exhale and you're neutrally buoyant, you actually lower yourself a, a few feet. So you actually do influence your density. It's very easy to see underwater under that circumstance. What, what's very difficult for us to see on land because we're surrounded by, by air is we don't see that, that differential. We can actually, me- we can measure it. There's certain ways to do that, but, but generally still speaking, fluid, it's, right? it, it is. And, and that that's, that's kind of how we want to make sure that, that, that we look at this is that we're still in a fluid medium you know even though we're surrounded by air but this is actually happening like as you and i sit here and as we breathe as we breathe in we actually re- are reducing our density we're going up and, and away from midline when as we exhale we're actually going down in, into our, our uh uh chairs and so so again it's it's always happening
1: yeah so the the elevator pitch for the er ir component of your model is more is like there's really only got two options for movement, which are, you know, expansion and compression. And those are sort of, those are sort of represented through external rotation and internal rotation. Um, both of which things are happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. It's just that as one maxes out, the other one minimizes and vice versa. And the kind of like two ships passing in the night. So you got two, like two representations working on top of each other. So in order to create, Movement at a joint, you need the sort of canceling of the two uh, rotations on top of each other. Instead of thinking like, "Well, you're ering and then iring," it's not. It's not like an absolute one or zero binary type of representation. Yeah. It's,
0: it's Well, like so the, relative uh, motion, the, the expression relative motion means that something is moving relative to something else, which means that. Yeah. So you know, if I if I am shrink myself down and I'm standing on a, on a femur and I see a tibia moving, it would be turning relative to my point of reference, right? So this is, this is like Einstein, if you really want to get, get technical about it, right? It's like relativity is what we're talking about. So my point of reference doesn't move. But again, if I could shrink myself down, I'd see the tibia moving relative to me. Even though I might be moving, the tibia is moving relative. So if we were if, if we were talking about a compensatory motion where we we're moving in, this, in the same direction at the same rate, there would be no perception of relative motion. That's actually what happens when we, we move into compensatory strategies where we lose the relative motions. So we always want, for relative motion purposes, we always want the representation of both ER and IR present. So let's start with with dead center middle then.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Because dead center middle... We can't see the ER. So this is this is going from a situation where we have we have superimposed ER and IR to a superposition. So it's superposed. Right? And and so and I always do this with the hand thing. It's like you can see two, two of my hands, and then eventually as they get closer and closer together, I can only see the one, right? And so in dead center middle, we don't see the expression. of of ER because external rotation requires the expanded representation and we don't have that. So this is the point where the greatest degree of compression is occurring. Therefore the predominant perspective is of internal rotation, high force, um, greatest density, exhalation strategy, right? Um, And anything that's outside of that would have a representation of external rotation. And then it's just a matter of, are we absorbing energy to be utilized and that would be an early representation of external rotation or are we releasing energy under that circumstance and that would be the late representation of, of, of external rotation and so if we were to describe the, the let's just use the sacral position um, in the in the point of greatest density the greatest degree of IR, we're going to have a nutated sacrum, and any deviation away from that will have an element of of counter-nutation, depending on direction. Like I said, if we're absorbing it, then we have a counter-nutated sacrum that is able to absorb energy, and if we're producing um, uh, energy under that circumstance, then we have a counter-nutated sacrum that
1: that is moving us forward right so we can we can sort of expand towards something or expand away from something and that would be like early to late correct the the problem that a lot of people run into when they come they need to come and see you um or they have some type of like injury non-contact injury specifically is going to be their their dead center middle they're not they're not putting the force down through that space that would be required for them to effectively do it. They're doing they're trying to put force into the ground from a position of external rotation and expansion. Correct. So yep. if you like you see you see someone pushing out the back side of their body, they blow they blow their Achilles, they're gonna be on like the outside of their foot, and they're not really cap they're not gonna be capturing the the max P where it's mm-hmm. supposed to be put that on the t-shirt it's like is your (laughs) is your max p where it's supposed to be and if the answer is no you're very likely going to have some type of failure of tissue right or some sort of compensatory give at a trend usually at some transitional segment yeah
0: all of all of the all of the great injuries that that proliferate sports tend tend to be er related um if you look at uh like the sprained ankle is, is, an easy one to see. And I think like everybody that's played a sport at some point in time has probably rolled their ankle. Right. And yeah. so what that means is like you roll to the outside of your foot. And then if you pay attention, what you see is like on the inside of the ankle is a downward pressure on the outside of the ankle is an expansion, there's IR on the inside of the ankle, there's ER on the outside of the ankle, and everything's going too fast in one direction because it's going to follow the direction of the expansion, which is expanding that lateral ankle way too quickly, right? So that's an ER and that the sprain occurs on the outside part of the ankle. So so again, that's an ER position where that injury is going to occur. If we looked at hamstring strains in soccer players, which is, you know, it's like almost like a badge of honor, it's rather prolific. Those are those. And because of their structural bias, one of the reasons why they're very, very good soccer players is they have this structural bias that, that, that gives them the ability to express the, the velocity that they need. And so they, they will evolve further in those directions. Left, They will lose the ability to produce the, the downward force, with any measure of relative motion. So they will start to use orientations, but then they'll get biased away from midline. And that's going to create a change in the position of the biceps femoris in most circumstances. And it will result in a hamstring strain. So, so again, it's like, this is one of those things that we need to understand how these things are expressed the IR being the down ER being away. It's like, I have both of those present, but if I, if I can't control those mechanically, I will eventually try to push down into the ground with an ER bias and then that's usually when bad things happen.
1: Yeah, and remembering too that if you if you're a person who has a structural archetype that biases you more towards external rotation, that it's going to be even harder for you to find that space to put the IR into the ground because it's a right. really narrow window. So' if you're, if you're working with like a lot of narrow athletes, and you're experiencing a lot of, you know, running related injuries, a lot of it is just because the technique has to be so much more, you have to pay attention a lot more to the technique of running with a narrow sprinter or someone narrow field athletes too are a specifically Mm -hmm. tough challenge because they, you know, all carry their center of gravity very high. So when it comes to change of direction, there's a lot of like compensatory bending going on in order to try to create the, bending their angles enough to be able to put force along the right lines to change direction versus like actually learning to drop their center of gravity, get a little bit wider so that they can sort of create a larger space for them to move within.
0: Well, then, and that's just it. They may not have a very large space to move within changes of direct changes of direction Require the acquisition of internal rotation. High force production requires the acquisition of internal rotation. Right. So now we're back to your comment about bias. Like, if they do have a structural bias towards ER, which would be your narrow helical archetypes, then then yeah, they're going to have more. They're going to have more trouble. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that they're, they're not going to be spectacular at what they do. It just means that we have to um, consider this in regards to programming. Like. This is why, you know, just because the job title is the same doesn't mean that they're going to produce force or velocity in the same manner, right? Which is why we fall back to the foundational archetypes because that's going to give us our tendencies. It's going to give us a, a representation of, of what they are good at. And then that falls towards, okay, if that's the case, then we should train these people in very specific ways.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, Trying to, trying to move people, trying to teach people technically to move on their angles, on their own helical angles is is a good way to do it. So if you can use, you know, if you use reference points of like, even the old school sprinting references of like moving your hand from your hip to your face, like that will coincide typically with that person's helical angle. Right. Or at least come yeah. come closer to it. So that's why that that's why that works for everybody, but it's like if you if you try to teach if you try to teach a wide individual to cut similarly to how you teach a narrow individual to cut, and you're trying to put everyone into one certain box for technique, you might be missing the boat because it's not that's not technique is not relative to their structure. That's kind of yes. the point, I'm trying to make here. Like a,
0: I I think a lot of people probably see the difference. They just may not understand how they can they can promote a favorable influence. When you think about right. like a like a like a tall lanky athlete versus a short stocky athlete going into and coming out of a cut, and you you look at the the differences in hip position. You look at the angle of the tibia relative to the foot relative to the ground, and you can see those differences, right? But again, it, it it's like. I don't know if it, if it translates to thought processes when you're actually training someone, because this is where we start to recognize, it's like, oh, my short, stocky athlete has a much bigger space to apply this IR into the ground. Therefore, his joint position does look radically different from my taller, more slender athlete.
1: Right, so if like you were gonna do a drill where you had an athlete run, touch a cone, and come back. You tried to get every athlete in the group regardless of narrow or wide to stay very vertical and drop their center of gravity low to touch the cone, you're going to be doing a disservice to the narrow who actually probably needs to angle himself or herself away from the cone so that he can actually stay on his helical angle as he changes direction. If you were to have him be very perpendicular with the ground and try to stay low and keep his chest up because somebody told you that was how you change direction, Right. you're going to make you're going to be asking for some type of compensation from the narrow versus a wide who could probably do that could probably hold that position because of the the wide spaces that they have available to put their leg out and then yeah. drop their center of gravity in that space yeah
0: yeah typically what you're gonna i mean if you really want to make a comparison and you again if we use short and stocky versus tall and slender right going into the cut the the short stocky has a much flatter angle going in, right? Because it is on his helical angle. If I try to put the narrow on that same angle, what's going to happen is they will be able to go into that cut. But what you're going to see is they're going to get vertical first before they try to come back out of the cut. And so this is where you, you see them swooping up. They, they, they literally go up and this is the person that's coming slow out of the cut because again the the angle's different
1: right and then there's you know thinking about like other sport i think we should think of some other sporting so if you take a you take a pitcher who's really narrow and they have like a really steep high arm slot and then you try to get them to throw like real wide or like even like submarine style they're not going to be able to do it because it's off their angle and then you're going to end up with some type of UCL shoulder issue uh, for same thing yeah, I mean, for like, if you, if you have a pitcher who throws really wide, probably because he has to. And then you try to be like, okay, we're going to really try to come over the top with you a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You, you're just asking for, cause you're, you're working against nature pretty much in that. And that happens in golf too, all the time. Like people trying yeah, to, a, lot,
0: a lot of the like the, the things that are considered rotational sports are, are certainly we're going to see the same things over and over.
1: Yeah. So a lot of it, you know, whichever whoever seems to be, like, the best pitcher or golfer at the time, that's, like, the prototypical swing. Everyone looks right. to that swing, and it's like, well, yeah, you know, Ben Hogan had a great swing, but everyone can swing. Like, the the fact that, like, that isn't common sense. It's like everyone has, you know, though we know specifically two ends of the spectrum of narrow and wide, like, wherever you right. fall into that. It's like, yes. I... I've been coached personally by golf coaches when I've done lessons to swing really wide, like a hockey style swing, which is the, it's absolutely the opposite, furthest thing from what I should be doing for a swing. Correct. And lo and behold, it causes me neck pain <laughs> to swing <laughs> like that. So yes. I do a 20, 25 minute, 20 minute lesson and my neck hurts for three days because I'm swinging well below my heel angle. But if I swing yeah. super steep and high, I can hit, can hit that thing two sixty.
0: There you go. Yeah. I ready to turn pro.
1: Yeah. This, this <laughs> just goes back to my, my, my
0: contention that, that all ranges of motion are idiosyncratic. What, what has been in, you know, promoted in the textbooks are, are a series of averages and they're, they're, they're very inconsistent. Like you, you could pick up five, six different sources and you'll you'll see differences in what what they would consider norms, which they're not norms. Again, they're just averages, um, depending on on how they were studied. You'll see a thirty to forty degree difference in in what they would, they would consider, you know,
1: the norm. Yeah. And there, you know, there is too. There is a component of being. You know, we're talking about like putting someone in the most ideal position in order to move through space and then put force into the ground will be on these helical angles. But if you need to, like, if you, given the nature of your sport, you might need to bring in, you know, an extraordinary amount of force for that person. So that might require Mm -hmm. you to actually move off of your angles at some points to create more of a compressive response, more of a forceful (laughs) response.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, there's, there's all, all athletes, you know, in in their sport will at some point in time use a compensatory movement. Because, again, if, if, if you don't control so many elements of this, they, you know, it, it yeah. would be great if, if, if we could do that. But the reality is, is, is the unpredictability of especially field sports. It's like they're just unpredictable. You have no idea what position you're going to be in. And we can we can try to train people over and over to use these. You know, um, controlled movements. But the reality is, is like you're just not going to be able to do that. You are going to use compensatory uh, strategy because you're going to have to produce force. You're going to have to you're going to have to lock segments in together because relative motion will will dampen and dissipate force. Right? It's force production. It's like if I need a high force at a certain pre- time either to protect myself or to produce some measure of performance, I will I will do it. There may be consequences under that circumstance depending on what position I'm in at that time, which is why you know, no matter how smart we think we are or no matter how hard we try, we're never going to prevent all injuries. We just can't do it because of yeah. the unpredictability of the environment. Right? We can prepare people more effectively, I think, but – there's always going to be that element of unpredictability.
1: Yeah. And I think that's kind of where, you know, this, this underlying principle of, of the model, uh, being like to always try to increase aerobic endurance kind of comes in to fill. It gives you a, a, it gives you much more of a buffer for movement, I think. So you have a lot of people who are like not the greatest movers, in, uh, in like an evaluate an evaluation or like on the table or you know whatever assessment you might use to uh, evaluate somebody, but they have a tremendous amount of like aerobic fitness in the context of their sport. So that actually provides them some mm-hmm. level of adaptability and expansion and recovery. So that even if they are moving off of their angles and creating force in these, like what we would normally see as compensatory positions, they can kind of get away with it because mm-hmm. they yeah. have that sort of broad spectrum of aerobic endurance.
0: Correct. Because in, in this is, it's somewhat hidden I think in the literature to, to a degree, but if, but you look at the, the fatigue related studies and you start to see it'll, it'll be, it'll be uh, represented as as stability versus instability. So we look at, and, and you'll see it, they'll do localized activities that will fatigue an area. It's like a hip or, or the trunk or something like that. And then they will try to, they will give you a comparative measure of before and after of some sort of activity. And they'll say, well, there was a deviation of this joint or that joint that was that increased in the representation of fatigue. And so this is this is what we're talking about. This is where we, we lose the control of, of, of position. We're relying more on compensatory activities under those circumstances. And then we're more likely to, and I will say potentially, because again, there are other protective elements um, that we're more likely to be injured under that circumstance. And
1: that's a fatigue related phenomenon.
0: It's like, we just don't have the elements of control that we'd normally have.
1: Right. Yeah. So like, you know, uh, the highest predictors of injury are like fatigue and then previous injury, because it's just you—you've already sort of you in the fatigue you lose control in that s- scenario of fatigue, and then your past injury would be indicative of some type of movement behavior that makes the probability of you injuring yourself high. Yes. So if nothing is which
0: could next, be which could be structural, it could be behavioral, yeah. it could be any number of those. Those elements right. that, that we can't even account for. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah but Some still, the, the lowest lowest hanging fruit for me is always, like, the technical component. That's my bias, though. It's like, if this person keeps hurting himself, cutting, then you should probably look at how they cut. Yeah. And not just well, throw and, them and then in we, on a, Then we can fall back.
0: We can fall back on all of our other elements that we are aware of.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, instead we of the, together. you know,
1: the... Instead of the recommendation of like, oh, this guy keeps, you know, pulling his adductor, so we're just gonna do we're gonna do Nordic hamstring curls and Copenhagen adductor lifts and that's gonna fix because that fixes everybody, right?
0: Well the problem is is that, is that it it can be helpful for some people.
1: Well, yeah. Let's let's relate that back. So, let's instead of me just poo pooing all over what people tend to use. Let's say, <laughs> you know, if if I if I can perform if I can perform either exercise well, I might actually be able to put someone closer to the angles necessary to put that IR force down into the ground. Correct. potentially. That's that's, what, that's, what, that's essentially why they would would be
0: helpful, right? Yeah, because they're 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 both well designed to promote. A, a, an IR bias um, in producing force.
1: Right. So instead right. of me, so just take saying, somebody, like, never do take it. somebody
0: that has a, a structural ER bias. They train to capture more of the IR that they can produce, and they would be less less likely to be delivering the force in the ER position. Yeah. But again, that's, 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 that's intelligent programming right there. That's like, that's recognizing like, oh, this guy keeps doing this same thing over and over again. Well, how does he do this? Okay. What does he lack? Okay. How much of this, how much IR can he produce? Okay. Is there a way that we can improve his ability to deliver force into the ground? That's how you train him.
1: Yeah. And then understanding that if that guy keeps, you know, uh, tweaking his adductor cutting off of his right foot and he just does an adductor lift, but then continues to the cut the same way he was cutting when he injured himself. It's just, it's, you're just, you're just yeah. playing with the same, playing with the same crappy resources that you were the first time.